Welcome to another edition of Mormon Land. I'm managing editor Dave Noyce, joined by senior religion reporter Peggy Fletcher Stack. Hello, Peggy. Hi, Dave. Eliza R. Snow ranks as the most influential Latter day Saint woman of her time. And after Emma Smith, wife of Mormon founder Joseph Smith, perhaps the best known woman in the history of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints. She was a poet and a preacher, a plural wife of prophets a defender of polygamy, and a leader and champion of women. Still, there is much Latter-day Saints don't know about Eliza R. Snow. That can change now that the church has launched a new website called the Discourses of Eliza R. Snow that brings together her sermons, nearly 1,200 of them. Joining us today via Zoom are two of the forces behind this project, historians Jennifer Reeder and Elizabeth Keene. Jennifer, Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. We're glad to have you both. So Jennifer and Elizabeth, what was the genesis of this project from your perspectives? How did it come to be and why? Uh, Jennifer, you want to start? Sure, absolutely. Um, Matt Groh and I were sitting in my office a couple years ago um, talking about possible projects. And we had been working on a ginormous project trying to get all of the 19th century Relief Society Minute Books digitized and transcribed, which seemed like it would have taken forever. We were going, we were going to use crowdsourcing, and that, that project is still on the back burner. We thought one way, though, to kind of kickstart something like that in a more manageable way would be to collect the discourses of Eliza R. Snow. We had no idea how many there were, and it's been really exciting to find so many of them. Elizabeth? What you have to understand is that Jenny is the force behind this project. She's the one that <laughs> dreamed it up, brought it to fruition. Um, and I, I've been able to kind of jump on and help in the last little while. Um, but I think what Jenny highlighted is really important. These minute books, these Relief Society minute books, are this amazing source. And without them, we wouldn't have these discourses. We wouldn't have this aspect of Eliza Arsenault's interactions with Latter-day Saints. Yeah, these minute oh. books, yeah, it's from like different wards and things like that all around the region, right? It's pretty fascinating. Um, Jennifer, perhaps you could give our listeners a brief sketch of Eliza Snow's biography. Who was she? How did she get into the church? Uh, that kind of thing. Eliza was born in 1804 in Beckett, Massachusetts. So she comes from a New England family. They moved in, in 1806 when she was two years old to the frontier which was Ohio, um, and there they established a, a family and a small community in Mandaway, Ohio. Her father served as the Justice of the Peace, and she served as his secretary. She was educated. She loved writing poetry. That was sort of her form of discourse back then, and she also was interested in religion. Their family was very open to religion. They were Baptists, and then they became Reformed Baptists, and then they became um, Disciples of Christ or Campbellites. They were good friends with the Rigdon family, Sidney Rigdon. And she says that she loved reading the New Testament and hoped for a day when she could, could live at the same time as prophets on, on the earth. So when this, the the story of Joseph Smith and the Book of Mormon and his role as a prophet came to them. Her family was very excited. Um, she was a little skeptical, and I love this about her because she's very, very careful and measured. 
So Joseph actually came to their house and she writes in her life sketch that she watched him and marked who he was. And he seemed like a really good person. Um, her mother and her sister were immediately baptized, but she took a good five years, four or five years to really study it. She says, and I love this phrase, she says she wanted to see if it would be a wash, a flash in the pan. Um, and so it took her a while, but once she decided to be baptized, she was committed all the way through. And she knew that that was her path in life. So she moved to Kirtland. She donated a lot of money to the the construction of the Curlin Temple. Um, she lived with the Smith family and taught their family school. And her family, <clears throat> she moved with her family to Missouri, went through some of the persecutions in Missouri. They moved back to Nauvoo and the rest is history. So uh, she, Eliza what became the second General Relief Society president for the church, correct? And um, what year was that and how did how did she uh see relief society the uh, female the church's female organization well first of all it's interesting that she was not set apart as the general relief society president until 1880 and i think it's interesting for a couple of different reasons for one they're really still trying to figure out this organization thing in 18 77 they started stake relief societies which gathered all the ward relief societies in a county and in 1880 they decided to start a central board which could sort of oversee all of the stake relief societies and ward relief societies and emma had functioned in that role though before that and many women saw her as the elect lady or the great president of all presidents um, I think it's interesting that this didn't happen until after Emma Smith passed away in 1879. And I think that gives her um, a little bit of respect and reverence as the first Relief Society. But Emma, or Eliza, excuse me, Eliza was involved in the Relief Society from the very beginning. She was there on the first day in Nauvoo on March 17, 1842. And, and so... What was her role then and how did she see Relief Society? Eliza was the secretary of the Relief Society. And I think even back then, she kept the minutes, but she didn't speak much in Relief Society. She observed and she learned. She made a few comments here, here and there throughout the Navi Relief Society minutes, but I don't know, maybe it would have been weird to write stuff about what you said in your own minute book, right? I don't know. <clears throat> anyway, she acted in that capacity until July of 1843, when she left Nauvoo for a short time. She saw the Relief Society in a very distinct space. She saw it as the way that Joseph Smith saw it. Uh, he was remembered by Sarah Kimball as saying that the church was not fully organized until the Relief Society was organized. And so she saw it as an integral part of the church, and even in a way, the, an integral part of the priesthood, that it required both men and women to work together. One thing she stresses, especially that we see in kind of this first batch of discourses that are released on the website, the 1868-1869 uh, discourses that Eliza gave, is that she talks about not only her, her role at being um, a part of the, the Nauvoo Relief Society, 
and how much those minutes um, are just uh, crucial for the sisters to understand how to properly organize. Um, she reads these minutes a lot and Jenny can go into much more detail about why that's significant. Um, but the, the other part I think in this is that this is the way for the church to organize the sisters, to organize the women, to bring them together and unite them. And Eliza really stresses the need for unity, the need for an organizational aspect for the sisters of the church. And Jenny, did, didn't you tell me that that in, she used terms like quorum? I mean, she saw this as a kind of complementary organization to male priesthood Absolutely. quorums. Is that right? Yeah, and I love it. And I think when we look at the at the distinct um, definition of quorum or order also, and mm -hmm. order is a select group, I think it's just showing that this is a select group that is important and vital to the overall priesthood. So Emma Smith was the first woman to receive the temple endowment. And that's where Joseph taught was the highest form of priesthood with men and women. And um, Emma then then gave that to other women. And so Eliza also picked up that role in Salt Lake City. And she saw that part of the temple and the men and women needed together as an integral part of the formal organization of the church and of the Relief Society. So she often spoke about that to the women as well. But didn't I she also, oh, I'm sorry, didn't she also say she was ordained as the president? That's the words that was used. Elizabeth, yeah. do you want to? You know this better than I do. Okay, so or, ordain is a word that they used interchangeably in the early Relief Society and in the early church. And I really like the way that it's connected to order. It's to set in order or to put in order. And I think that's it, it, integral to the understanding of the word ordain. Today we use the word set apart, but she was, in fact, Emma was ordained as the first Relief Society president and the elect lady in Nauvoo. But then other Relief Society presidents in the beginning of the, the resurgence of Relief Society in, the, in 1868, <clears throat> they did use the word ordain. And even in 1880, when Emma, or when Eliza, excuse me, when Eliza was called and set apart, she was also ordained. It's interesting in that meeting in 1880, John Taylor was the, was the prophet of the church. And he said, it's, it, it's so cool to read these minutes. They're also printed in the Women's Exponent, and they're available in the first 50 years of Relief Society, which is online and in the Gospel Library app. He said that they did not assume at the time that women were given the priesthood. And he, it says that he turned around and looked at Sarah Kimball and Eliza R. Snow, and they nodded. So that's in the minutes, um, which I think is fun. Um, okay, so changing the subject a little bit, um, and maybe this is this might be for Elizabeth. Since didn't you are you working or have worked on the Joseph Smith Papers project? Yeah, that's been my background with the church. Um, okay, so she, Eliza was married or as a plural wife of both Joseph Smith and Brigham Young. So, what was her attitude towards those men, and did she? Did she have a different view of Joseph Smith and Brigham? Obviously, he died young. Uh, she knew him a very short time. She knew Brigham a very long time. I think she did have different relationships with both of them. Um, we know that she had a, a deep admiration 
and I think uh, a real connection with Joseph. Um, the, the poems that she writes about him and to him in the 1840s, um, particularly those after uh, they're, they're sealed as, as she sealed to him as a plural wife, uh, can be very poignant. Um, some of them have very personal kind of uh, connections. And um, from what we can tell, Eliza doesn't talk a lot about either marriage, really. Um, she, she talks about uh, both Joseph and Brigham in her discourses, um, but mostly she's talking about um, kind of her, her connection to Joseph and the Relief Society and the influence that he holds as, you know, the, the one who organizes the Relief Society, the one who restored the gospel, not necessarily as her, her husband. Um, in plurality, right? Um, and for Brigham Young, he's, for so much of this, uh, the, the current prophet. And so she's talking about, you know, the missions that I've got from, from President Young, or this is what President Young wants the sisters to be doing. She's not talking about their, mar their plural marriage. Um, her relationship with Brigham seems to be a bit more formal. It's, it's not quite as uh, personable as we get the kind of hints of with her uh, plural marriage to Joseph. Um, so I, I do think there are some differences there, but I think there's also still kind of admiration and deference uh, to Brigham. She's she's kind of following his orders, following his lead, um, and she's a staunch defender of plural marriage. And she does bring that um, in a, into some of her discourses where she talks about, you know, I didn't fully understand what, what was happening in Nauvoo when, when I agreed to this. And I've, you know, over the years, I've come to understand it much better. You know, I've come to have it be so much a, a bigger part of her life. You know, it shapes her life in so many ways. Um, but did she, as, as men of God, as, as church presidents, uh, did she revere both of them? Did she see them as as called of God in that way? She really did. And I have to add this to Elizabeth too. In 1880, she really takes on this idea that she needs to talk about being a plural wife of Joseph Smith. And she's very clear about that. And I think that is a part of the historical context that's going on. Emma has died in 1879. And in the fall, her sons publish an article in the Saints Herald, which is the reorganized church, now Community of Christ newspaper, where they had an interview with Emma, and Emma has denied polygamy. So many women in Utah at that time saw this as an opportunity to declare that they, in fact, were married to Joseph Smith, or yes, to Joseph Smith. So Eliza does something really interesting, and I love this because I love material culture. She takes a gold watch that Joseph gave her, and supposedly that he gave her this watch so that she could keep time for as the secretary of the Relief Society. Um, we also know that he gave gold watches to some of his other wives, but she would take that gold watch with her, especially as she's organizing primaries. And she would show the children this gold watch and say, Joseph Smith gave me this gold watch. I was his wife. She was asserting that and claiming that. And then she would let the children hold the gold watch and many of them grew up and later wrote about this experience where they heard Eliza R. Snow say that she was a wife of Joseph Smith and they held 
the gold watch that he gave to them. So she does connect herself specifically to Joseph, but she doesn't talk much about the, the situation of the marriage. So I think a lot of Latter-day Saints are familiar with Eliza Arsenal, mainly from her poetry uh, and, and probably mainly from the lyrics to one hymn, uh, Oh My Father. There are other lyrics, of course, too. But I'm betting most don't know that she was this powerful preacher, sermonizer, and that she did all these travels. What did you, what did you learn about her from her sermons? Give, a, give some idea, ma'am, Jennifer, tar- starting with you, about the scope of, of her, her preaching. First of all, I want to say that when Brigham Young, in 1868, asked her to instruct the sisters, she uses these words in her life sketch, she was so scared, her heart went pit-a-pat. Like, this was not something that was natural to her. As I said before, she didn't speak up very much in Relief Society, or at least we don't know that she did because she didn't keep minutes of it. She was much more familiar and comfortable in speaking through her poetry. She did that quite a bit in the 1850s with different uh, associations, the Polisophical Society, the Literary and Music Association. But when it came to Relief Society, she realized that she held a specific role to teach women what Joseph had taught them and the purpose of the Relief Society and the proper order or organization of Relief Society. So she, like Elizabeth said, would take the Nauvoo Relief Society minute book. And even if she felt, if she felt like they weren't organized where she was speaking, if they hadn't been properly organized, she would say, we got to reorganize you according to the proper order. Look at what it says in the minute book. She also will sometimes start, especially some of these talks in the 1860s, she'll say, I'm not a professional speaker, um, so please forgive me. And it's so interesting, though, to see how, how that changes over time between 1868 and 1887 when she dies, where she does become very prolific. Of course, she is speaking, for the most part, extemporaneously. And so maybe to us, it seems a little scattered. Um, But she also encourages other women of the importance of speaking. She tells them not to be afraid to speak. She tells them to have something to say. And if they don't have something to say, have something to read aloud. Um, She was very encouraging of that. She really wanted them to have a voice. Elizabeth, what what strikes you about about her sermons and, and what she would say? One thing that, that really struck me right off the bat was the general tone. She's very, um, very optimistic, very um, encouraging. She wants the sisters to, to do better, to reach for more. Um, it's, it's a very empowering way. Like Jenny said, sometimes she's correcting them. Sometimes she's trying to set things in order or maybe chastising a small bit saying, oh, I, you know, I've heard some things and we need to kind of get things back in order. But by and large, her tone is very encouraging and she's very empowering of women. Um, not, not in any kind of desire, I think, to upset the status quo, but, but very much in kind of a, she wants the women to, to kind of reach their fullest potential really. Um, And so you see her, you know, urging mothers to be well-educated, to make, you know, their, their duties as housewives, this um, 
real anchor of their lives to really excel in these ways. Um, and she's encouraging, uh, you know, the, the young ladies that are attending her meetings um, to be educated, to not dwell on things that she calls, you know, vain and frivolous, very much in kind of this retrenchment fashion, um, right? You know, focus on self-sufficiency, focus on education, focus on, you know, how to build yourself up as an individual. Um, and I think that comes across in almost every single uh, discourse you read, um, just the sense of, of wanting the saints to be better, wanting them to, to like Jenny said, find a voice um, and, and to really kind of stand up for, for the gospel and, and for the kingdom that they're building. So in these, in these discourses, did she talk about anything about healing blessings because women used to do those either in relief society or in informal settings and what about speaking in tongues did she talk about that at all she does and it's really interesting and really exciting to see that practice she is very um very careful and measured and yet she talks about how this is a role and a gift that women can have she draws Wait, which on one are you talking about now, Jenny? He, speaking in tongues or healing? Both. Both. Okay. She talks, there's a famous speech that Joseph Smith gives to the Relief Society on April 28th, 1842, where he talks specifically about that. But she often does that. In fact, we have one meeting that comes later in 1880, where she and Zina go and visit the daughter of Mary Isabella Horn and her husband, and they've just had a baby. And we've included it because Sarah Kimball has recorded it as a sort of discourse, but it's a private discourse. And she gives the baby a blessing. And then she talks about how this, this child will grow up in a, in a good home and will be a strong woman who is a little girl. But she does that often. Um, she, the other thing that I love about her, and I think that makes her so significant among all these women, I'm speaking of healing, is that she wanted a personal relationship with them. And that's one of the reasons why she travels all over Utah Territory, Southern Idaho Territory. And she wants to see them and to bless them and to love them and to hear them. She practices what she preaches. She later teaches them, well, not later, all the way through. She teaches them about visiting teaching or personal ministry and about going in and blessing the women that have cold hearts or cold homes or that need that warmth and, and spirit. Um, there are several instances where she speaks in tongues and where someone else interprets those. Oftentimes it's Zina. She and Zina Young had a very special relationship. And I think that's a really interesting, interesting concept simply because we don't practice that today we maybe practice healing and speaking in tongues in different ways. I think we need to expand our definitions because I think we still, as women, have those gifts that are used in different ways. Elizabeth, do you have anything to add to that? No, I would just say that um, I, I think she really sees these, these uh, the, the blessings as a way to bring, kind of bring this community of sisters together. You know, when she's really trying to push this uh, teacher's quorum that's supposed that's kind of in charge of this, this visiting, this ministry, um, 
they, in, in a lot of the 68 discourses, they have this sense of, oh, they're coming for money. They want our donations. And she's like, you've got to change your tune here. You're there to, to be with the sisters. You're there to encourage them. You know, you're there to spread cheer. And if they give you donations, that's great, but don't expect that, right? And so definitely trying to change this format into something that's, that's a much more kind of community-driven, caring ministry and not a, we want your money. The website says uh, in the overview of her of the project that Eliza Arsenault shared her political opinions. I'm curious, what are some of those political opinions? Uh, 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 Elizabeth, you want to start? Well, I think her strongest political opinion is is plural marriage, is polygamy. Um, so much of of the anti polygamy legislation that the church is facing, you know, she's combating that head on. Um, and she's also steering the saints uh, down a different path, right? She wants them to focus on Zion and building Zion and not the things of the world. And so she's very much kind of echoing uh, Brigham Young's message, right? Whether it's retrenchment, whether it's strengthening the word of wisdom among, um, you know, these kind of scattered uh, stakes uh, throughout Utah, because I think one thing that these discourses really show us is as she's going to all these places, as Jenny said, to form this personal relationship, to be there, to be with the sisters, for so many, she becomes this kind of connection to the institutional church. She knows Brigham Young, right? She's, she's a plural wife of Brigham Young. And not only that, but she is, you know, the, the general president of the Relief Society. And she's in these, you know, key leading circles in Salt Lake. But here she is going out all throughout, you know, the kind of Intermountain West to be with these sisters and, and to share sometimes very pointed um, doctrinal and political messages. So I think one of her political messages really comes strong in 1870 when the women in January have a mass indignation meeting or a great indignation meeting. And they turn the practice of polygamy into a practice of religious freedom. So that's a huge political platform. But I also love how she, she encourages women to vote. We know that Utah women were the first to vote in 1870. We just read, reviewed a speech yesterday, I think it was in 1873, where she said, there's a convention going on next door. After this meeting, you need to go vote. So she, again, it's really expressing the need for women's voices. She does give a fascinating speech. It was one of the, among the earlier ones that we found on July 24th, 1849. And we have it in her own handwriting. And it's a time where she does talk about the way that um, the Mormons came from the East or the Midwest to Utah in order to have their religious freedom and what the Constitution meant and how it allowed for that. It's an incredible speech, it's an early speech, but it's really interesting. And that one will go up a little bit later as we um, put up later batches of these talks. In your uh, perusal of all these discourses, did you find, did she say anything about race? I know she wrote a poem about it and about slavery, but is there anything in the discourses about race? There isn't. And that's interesting because we know certainly race must have been a part of her life. 
And she did, as you say, she wrote, I think, a couple of poems that um, in today's language can be, can be seen as racist. But she doesn't so far talk about race. And obviously, I think that shows that race wasn't top of mind for her. And what do you think about the story that we reported uh, in 2016 about her being gang raped in Missouri? Do you think there's anything to that? I think there's a great possibility that that happened. Some of her poetry from that time is very angry and hard. Um, we, she never talks about it though. It is never mentioned in any of her writings, in any of her discourses, in any of her poetry even. It just, it may be a part of the, the, the vibe of her time but she never talks about it. The source that we do have for that is a much later source that um, could very well be true. We don't know. Okay, so to the two of you, what do you think were Eliza's greatest strengths and her greatest weaknesses? That's a great question. I think, like Jenny pointed out, even though she was a really reluctant speaker at first, I really think this becomes one of her amazing strengths. She becomes such a, a profound um, speaker, and you know, I think she brings all of kind of the 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 polish and eloquence of her poems. I think she finds a way to bring that into who she is as a speaker, um, and. I, one thing I've loved uh, really in these discourses is seeing how people uh, react to her speaking. There are so many um, bishops and Relief Society presidents that thank her, that laud her, that talk about how she brings the spirit and how you know she, she brings this kind of warmth and love with her. Um, and so I, I think she really is a powerful speaker, but also in that she's able to be so personable um, and, and to really, to really help, um, you know, the, the sisters especially uh, see their potential. In terms of, of a weakness, I, I don't, I have a hard time uh, saying that from just the discourses, uh, but if there's a weakness to the discourses, I think it's that we don't get to see that personal side of her as much as she is personable in her, in her speech and in kind of creating this atmosphere for the sisters. Uh, you know, she's not she's not going in a lot into the details of her own life. She might bring out one or two stories. You know, she might talk about her conversion um, in one or two instances. But you know, she's she's not talking about things like like potentially um, you know the the rape or um, you know other things that she faced um, through the course of her life. She's not going into those personal details. So I think one of her greatest strengths is she sees the, the potential and the power of women. As Elizabeth said, a lot of times she spoke to groups of young women. And in this case, she um, is able to, well, well, let me back that up. She speaks to groups of young women and we don't have an age limit at this time. It's not like they turn 18 and they go to Relief Society. So you have a lot of young mothers. And she sees them in her audience or in her congregation, and sometimes they're holding babies or whatever. And she says, I'm so glad to see you here. It is so important for you to be here. Your home and family are number one, but you need the community that you can feel, the warmth that you can feel when you're with the community of sisters. 
And then you can take that warmth back to your home, but you need that strength. She also talks quite a bit about how women are responsible for their own salvation, that they cannot rely on their fathers or brothers, um, that they have to work out their own salvation. Um, I think possibly one of her one of her weaknesses is not necessarily her weakness, but perhaps more our weakness. She's, she is enveloped in her time period. And sometimes I think it is hard for us in the 21st century in our state of presentism to understand what she's saying about uh, plural marriage or about the curse of Eve and women. Um, without understanding that historical context. She does, in fact, speak from a historical context. And we have a section on our website that goes through some of those topics to explain that historical context. Um, the other thing that I think is a weakness, and again, it's not her weakness, but it's a weakness of the secretaries. We have such a wide variety of secretaries who are recording her words and some of them are excellent and they're excellent at capturing what she says and they're very detailed and others are not as detailed and don't spell very well and just summarize things and um you can almost hear the way that they hear in the way that they write it down so it's kind of it's kind of interesting to look at it that way um, improper grammar, um, misspellings, um, all sorts of things, but they're so real and it's so important to, to capture that moment in time. The interesting thing as I read some of them though was that uh, many of them do manage to capture that you know there was a literary soul in her. Do you know what I'm saying? There's imagery and word choices that are unique that you would feel like a poet or a wordsmith would use. Something like golden apples and a silver, I can't remember exactly what it said. You know what I'm talking about? Yes, absolutely. Can you give some examples of that? Oh, gosh. That's <laughs> the one I thought of, exactly. You do see that, though, right? Yeah, you do. And you can tell she has a poetic voice. And it's funny because you can also tell the secretaries that are able to capture that. And then there's other secretaries that are not <laughs> able to capture that because they don't have that natural literary understanding yeah but they have again, a tin ear to that yeah they don't they don't get it yeah. right but she's always like elizabeth said she's always telling them you've got to read good books and become educated elizabeth do you have anything to add one of my favorite things that i think captures that lyrical heart that you're getting at is her analogies she she uses a lot of analogies when she's speaking and one that, that I really love, uh, and it's over the course of several discourses, you get bits and pieces of this same kind of core analogy, um, when she's talking about kind of the, the trials of mortality and then kind of the joy of heaven, she says, you know, ladies, we're in the washroom now, we're in the kitchen, but soon we'll go to the parlor. And it's this sense of like, you know, it's very much focused in kind of the domestic sphere and very much their world. But I think that evokes so much, right? Like, yeah, you're, you're in the washroom, you're doing the laundry, you're doing the dishes, you're making the food, all of that kind of gritty toil that, that takes over your day. But, but soon you'll be able to rest in a beautiful parlor and, you know, that's the end goal. Can I share, can I share just one yes. um, example? This is from... The 14th Ward, Salt Lake City 14th Ward Relief Society on August 5th, 1868. They had a really good secretary, and you'll tell by just reading this. 
She said, our exaltation or damnation will depend upon the manner in which we improve our opportunities and advantages. There is great danger of running into enthusiasm, but because of this, we should not sit down and do nothing but be diligent. And then she goes on again to tie this back to Joseph. Joseph said we were saved just as far as we had obtained the victory over our evil propensities. There's one of those poetic words, right? She was thankful to be thus organized under the priesthood of God, had always observed that whenever sisters had organized and endeavored to go ahead without this, they had always got into difficulty. This organization was a check. So again, we get that sense of order and doing it right. And the phrase like, what was it, running into enthusiasm? Yeah. Uh-huh. The great danger phrase. of running into enthusiasm. Yes. Uh, I love that. So after gathering and reviewing, preparing all this material, you had to walk away surprised by some things. Um, what surprised you uh, it, that you didn't know before going into this? One thing that surprised me was just how widely she travels. Um, that isn't necessarily reflected in these kind of late 60, 1860s uh, discourses, but I think there's a fantastic map on the website that shows you just the sheer extent of her travels. Um, and, and not being a native Utahan, I had to learn Utah geography because I didn't know where some of these uh, towns and, and cities were. And it was just shocking to me that it's, it's not that she goes there once and never speaks there again, but she's going to some of these rem- remote places multiple times. And so it was just a a realization of how influential and how widely traveled she was. I love that Elizabeth brought up the map. And that is one of my favorite things of this website is there, there's actually three maps, but there's one in particular that just has a dot on every place that she went to. And it is lit. This lady was lit. She She's incredible at the way she was able to reach different places. Um, And then we have some separate maps that show in more detail a tour that she made to the northern part of Utah Territory in 1878 and another one to the southern part of the territory in 1880 and 81. Um, The big map, though, is interactive. And so as soon as the discourses are up, you can click on the dot and go straight to the discourse. And another thing that I love is the, the images that we've been able to find of where she actually delivered these discourses. I think it makes it all the more real and it sets it in its place. Um, one last question as we start to conclude, uh, what do you hope readers take away from it? Um, what, are, what, are your, what are your ambitions for that? I think I, our audience, I would hope, is both a scholarly audience and a general audience. Scholarly in the sense that this is an amazing religious woman who exhorted scripture and expounded to both men and women. Um, she was a progressive woman for her time as a result of that. And so were so many of her peers in um, the church. She taught them to speak up and speak out and really led the way in that. And I love that. I think that that is really helpful to understand. Also, it gives us very interesting information on local um, religion, local practice religion and what's going on. But I think it's also provides some incredible devotional material 
And I would hope that that seeps its way into more formal um, curriculum and use. Elizabeth? I can only second what Jenny said. I really do hope that, that scholars see this for the resource it is. Um, so often it's hard to get at that kind of every man and every woman experience in the church. And, and while we're still filtering it through, through Eliza, um, I think you can see a lot of that connection and a lot of what they might be um, hearing from her, what they might be, what they might be taking in and what, what the salient topics of the day are. Um, and I do hope that it does kind of make it more accessible, make, make her words, um, and especially some of these really poignant kind of timeless truths. It's amazing how you'll go through and do kind of the detailed transcription work and you'll just hit a sentence or two and just kind of have to sit back and be like, wow, that, that really feels timeless. That really feels relevant to me right now today. Um, and, and I hope that that rings true for all of our audiences. Jenny, maybe you can tell our listeners how easiest to find it on a website, on, on, the, on the internet. Absolutely. It's on churchhistorianspress, all one word, dot org. Mm -hmm. And you'll be able to see it there. You probably can find a link from the LDS Church's main website too, correct? Yes, I believe that is going up today. Yes, um, okay. But also on that website, you'll find the diaries of Emmeline B. Wells and some of the early Relief Society documents. And some early discourses, early and contemporary discourses by Latter-day Saint women. Great. Well, Jennifer Reeder and Elizabeth Keene, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It was, a, it was a real privilege to be with you. It was a pleasure. Be well, both of you. Okay. Thank you. Thanks. And thanks to Peggy Fletcher Stack. Always a pleasure. And to our producer, Chris Samuels. We remind our listeners that they can keep up on all the happenings in and about the church by subscribing to our free weekly newsletter. Just go to sltrib.com to sign up, and we'll talk again next time on Mormon Land.